This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Talking about the, uh, the the van attack in Toronto and the life of Alec Manassian and trying to find out more in regard to his past and what led him to do what he did uh, in Toronto. Uh, Catherine McDonald from Global News uh, investigating that angle of the story and trying to find out as much as possible. Uh, we're hearing all kinds of... Uh, uh, I guess, layers to this story in regard to uh, how he grew up, some uh, classes that he was involved in, uh, in regard to autism. He was uh, apparently on the autism uh, spectrum, a very bright person. Uh, also uh, had tried, I guess, uh, with, uh, with time in the military. That didn't work out. Ended up uh, leaving there uh, just after a couple of weeks of, of basic training. And, and, of course, the social media posts, which in, involve uh, incels, which are people who are involuntary celibate. And is this a group? Is this a movement? Is this just a bunch of people that, that share the same feelings and, and the same experiences? Let's bring in Ishmael Darrow, social news editor for BuzzFeed and on the air with us now. Ishmael, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. No problem. Thanks, Scott. So what do we know about this movement? Is it a meme? What? How organized is this? Is it just a bunch of people with similar interests? Well, what we know is that it is mostly an online phenomenon. This is uh, There's lots of forums online. Uh, there used to be a major community on Reddit, which probably your listeners are more familiar with, uh, which did eventually get banned because some of the rhetoric on there just got too violent, too misogynistic. But this is uh, definitely a thing where mostly young men congregate online. And uh, does it promote violence? Um, well, I mean, it's hard to pin down ex- the exact ideology, and most people would probably tell you that, no, they don't believe in violence. However, in the wake of this attack, uh, there's been lots of posts on these forums that uh, you know, I've been monitoring that, um, that show a lot of sympathy for Alec Manassian, the, the suspect. And, of course, Elliot Roger, the, the 2014 killer who expressed uh, similar views, he said he was an incel, he is often hailed as a kind of saint or hero or symbol of this, uh, this community. So is this an ideology or a, a group of people who have just fallen through the cracks? I think it's both. I, I think uh, certainly lots of men who... Uh, identifies in cells or, or hang out on these forums. They, they think of it as a support group, but often what, what you see on these forums is, is lots of anger and resentment. And I think it is part of a larger kind of ideology that we've seen take shape in the last couple of years, this kind of reactionary politics uh, of mostly disaffected young men uh, who hold um, views that are you know, anti-women, anti-feminist, anti-immigrant. There's also a fair amount of racism on these forums, which might surprise you if their main you know, gripe is lack of romantic or sexual partners, but it, it is all sort of part of that toxic brew. Uh, in regard more to the incel part of this discussion, does anybody offer solutions? Does anybody, or, or do, do they get together and meet and do anything other than, I guess, complain about the situation? It, it is mostly complaining, and it's a lot of self-pity, and uh, undoubtedly some, some young men do feel like they've been... Uh, they haven't gotten their due. Uh, unfortunately, the solutions that are often proposed on these forums uh, just don't jibe with the modern world. You know, uh, people saying that they should simply be given wives, um, going back to a much more traditional way of life where everyone was guaranteed a marriage, 
women should not really have a choice in their partners. These are not solutions that anybody will take seriously, of course, but within this group of mostly self-pitying young men, this is the kind of rhetoric that, that is on there. Misogyny on the rise on gr- in groups like this? Uh, you see more of this on social media, these types of groups? I think so, and, and at the risk of making too large of a, a commentary, I think we've certainly seen a rise on social media in the last couple of years of views that maybe even a handful of years ago would have been outside the norm and outside the bounds of polite society. And I think in some ways people just feel like they have more permission than ever to express these opinions. And uh, this obviously isn't the first kind of community. We saw similar things with Gamergate a few years ago, if anyone remembers that, which was um, young male gamers feeling that feminism and women were, were um, uh, taking, were, were putting too much of a burden on them. So I think um, wow. online... Uh, how, about, how, how, about spending, how about spending less time on the game, maybe, and out in social life? And uh, What is the root of this? Is the root of this... Um, antisocial behavior, and this is just a forum? Because as you said, a lot of what they're saying is, is kind of out there. M- most people in the mainstream would, would not agree with what they're saying. Um, mm-hmm. it, how do they justify this? One thing that you see a lot is people really obsessed with how they look and their perceived shortcomings. People saying, I'm ugly, I'm too short, I'm of this ethnicity, and, and women just will not give me the time of day. And of course, you know, when you have that sort of attitude, yeah. it, it makes it much more difficult to form those connections because you've essentially given up and you've decided that you've written yourself off and, and that just doesn't lead to a good place. You talked about how this sort of discussion wouldn't happen even a few years ago. Have we crossed a line? How did we get there? Um, is this just what happens when this sort of stuff is left unchecked? I think that's certainly a big part of it. Uh, often these sorts of online communities have a very insular, in-group kind of terminology. There's lots of irony. It's always hard to know how serious anybody really is about the vile stuff they're saying. But because it happens on these darker corners of the Internet where there's a kind of self-radicalization that happens where maybe you go in and and you just think, oh, I'm not getting any dates, but you hang out with a lot of other people who are constantly egging each other on, and maybe six months or a year down the road, your views have actually shifted quite a lot, and you are maybe... A little more set in your identity than you were coming in. Why not hang around with those who are getting dates rather than hanging around with those that that are not? Why do they go? This, why do they take this path? And I'm just using the dating angle as an example, obviously. Mm-hmm. Of course. Well, part of this uh, this incel community um, worldview and part of the language that they use is that men who are successful or whom they deem to be very good looking, they they are known as chads, uh, yeah. and the women who date chads are Stacys. So you can tell that there's a lot of linguistic complexity to this in a way that, that makes it really, really comfortable for people within the group that have all these um, you know, terms and sayings. It, I think it becomes a place of familiarity where you almost detach a bit from the w- wider world. Makes you feel like you're part of the group, or a group, I guess. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So how do we get back across this line? How do you, how do you police this? That's a, that's a good question. So, uh, as I mentioned, one of the largest communities uh, used to exist on Reddit. However, it got so bad that Reddit did shut it down. And now, I actually think it's a, it's a very good question to say, you know, whether any of these platforms have a duty to carry this kind of material. 
Uh, there are forums which are a little harder to police, and then there's websites like 4chan. Uh, but none of these exist outside the bounds of society. You know, the Internet is not really separate from our real lives. And I think um, there's potentially room for, for stronger um, enforcement. Or, or, but, but ultimately, you know, these are real people, and we may, uh, it, it might just come down to interpersonal relationships. And if we see somebody getting radicalized in this way uh, in our families, in our friend circles, you know, that might be the only real way to ultimately affect any change. Why has this been legitimized? Uh, why do they think it? Why, why does anybody think this is okay to? You we're talking about the behavior and, and how it's changed over the years on the internet. Why? Why has it become legitimized? Why do people now think it's okay to do this, or does it just keep slowly moving forward? And before you know it, we're there. Mm-hmm. Well, I think in some ways this isn't new because. Anybody with a screen name, you know, on the Internet, nobody knows you're a dog. That's the old joke. While on the Internet, when you're a screen name, uh, nobody necessarily is holding you accountable for the awful things you're saying. And especially in communities where there is this heavy uh, sort of in-group language and irony and inside jokes, uh, you know, that can really become your life. And you may lose track of how outside the norm that is when often maybe those are your friends. Those are the people who, only, who are the only ones who really understand the situation that you are in. Do you think this is a reaction to the Me Too movement? People now holding you know, the male gender accountable. I think you know, what we've seen with the Me Too movement and all sorts of similar initiatives in the past uh, you know, 10 years or so uh, of women speaking up and really claiming their place um, has unfortunately engendered a backlash, and that backlash takes many forms. And unfortunately, one of those forms, I think, really is that young men who feel disaffected and who feel left out, who don't know their place, they can turn to some dark things. You know, that can maybe take on racial elements, or in this case, it can take on a real resentment against women because of their own romantic and sexual frustrations. Is the Internet becoming more of a world for extremists? I think in some ways the Internet is uh, helping that. We see this uh, you know, in the same way that uh, radical militant groups use all sorts of uh, Internet technologies to communicate and to organize and to do real ho- horrible, awful things. Um, these platforms are not neutral, and I think the way they're built and the way they're policed ultimately does raise larger questions about how the infrastructure of the Internet itself is governed. Um, you know, there's lots of questions about Facebook and its role in, in all of this as well. Uh, maybe not in the incel community, but in a larger sense. So I think there is a, a long overdue uh, thinking about how the Internet and how these platforms shape our politics and our behavior that I think is really long overdue. Do we live in a world of extremes, or is it the extreme fringes just seem to be louder than the rest of us? I think that's really it. I, ultimately, you know, if you uh, are on a, you know, a soccer team or, or you're a professional club, you're not going to encounter people with such extreme views. But online, um, there are corners where people with extreme views can find each other and can further radicalize each other. And that's not really a fault of, um, I don't think that says much more about our society other than there's simply that option for some people. People who in the past might have just uh, not found that kind of community now can, and, and that can occasionally lead to some really troubling things. Do you think more are moving towards the, that community? Do you think this is uh, gaining popularity? 
Is it growing? I, I think it's important to recognize that even within uh, this kind of uh, online world, the incel community is extreme, even by those standards. But it's also part of a larger, um, what some people call the manosphere, which is uh, the world of um, men's rights activists or people who call themselves pickup artists who try to gamify relationships or people who, who might identify as the alt-right. These are all very nebulous terms, but I think within that larger world, you do see a kind of uh, permissiveness and a kind of provocation um, just because you can. And, and as we see, you know, often that stuff bleeds into our real physical world in, in quite troubling ways. How is this community reacting to what happened with this van attack in Toronto? Are, are people, you mentioned that some are sympathetic towards Manassian. Is anybody, is anybody the other way? Is anybody saying, wow, this is getting out of hand, this, this is terrible? What, how has this community reacted to this incident? So I've been monitoring these, uh, these spaces since the attack, and it has been disheartening, to say the least. While there are some people who will say, you know, I don't condone the violence, you know, this is wrong, you shouldn't go around killing people, as Manassian is alleged to have done, um, there is much more sympathy. There is also much more justifying, saying, you know, if, if young men can't uh, have sex, if they are not given th- these things that they are owed, then this is what you get. And, and you see this a lot in wow. reaction to Monday's attack and also in reaction to 2014's Elliot Roger attack. What about sympathy for those that, that there's been chat of mental illness w- with this person? Any sympathy towards that? Or, you know, perhaps this means we should look farther into, you know, further into those that may be slipping between the cracks. Is there any discussion there? Well, I, I think obviously, you know, it's important to say that, you know, mental illness does not necessarily lead to violence. Yes. Um, but, but often uh, in, in these forums, when people self-identify, and they're very, very meticulous in, in how they identify, you know, they, they know their exact weight and height and, and all the reasons that they think that they are unlovable. And often people will also claim that they, you know, are socially awkward or, or can't fit in or potentially have um, more, more serious conditions. And, again, I don't think that necessarily means that any of that leads to violence, but, but there, there seems to be a lot of sympathy for reasons why uh, Alec Manassian may have done this, rather than thinking, well, well, that's actually quite awful, and how has our community potentially enabled it? Hmm, exactly. Uh, do, they, uh, do, do people on, in this community uh, really want to fix it? Is there any self-help going on? I think that's probably hard to say right now. I think right at this moment, uh, this, uh, let's be honest, you know, fairly small community, but, but currently under the microscope, um, I think they feel under attack and they feel under pressure. So I don't think that kind of self-reflection is necessarily going to happen now. However, I have hoped that maybe um, a little further down the road, some people who have fallen into this kind of rabbit hole will start to dig themselves out of it or, or, or think a little more critically about where they've gone to because, like I said, this is sometimes built as a support community, but it's really not. It, it, in fact, I think probably makes it much easier for people who are feeling, um, you know, done, uh, kind of betrayed by society. It makes it much harder for people in this community to see the light. Any discussion on how Manassian got here, on, 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 on how he came to this post? Well, 
I think we have to remember that very little is still known about Manassian, and yeah. we are basing this on a Facebook post, which appears to be real, uh, in which he identified as part of the incel community. However, in some of the reporting that's come out, you know, Manassian is uh, described as being quite socially awkward, um, having problems with discipline, while also being apparently quite intelligent and quite skilled um, with computers and technology. And that does uh, fit a larger sort of archetype of people who might actually be quite intelligent, especially um, very technology savvy, but socially they feel that they just don't have the same skills and often they feel that they also don't have the looks and the other social status. And and what little we've, we've learned about Mr. Manassian um, suggests that it, it is sort of, of a pattern with that world. Ishmael, what can we learn from this? I think, you know, obviously we we want to be uh, monitoring these spaces much more carefully. And it does happen. For example, after 2014, we had very similar conversations about uh, Elliot Roger and misogyny and, and, and the dangerous places that sort of unchecked worldview can lead. And I think it it's important for us to, to maintain that focus going forward. Um, all these online spaces where young men get radicalized, be that, you know, with groups like ISIS or be it with groups like the alt-right. Mm. Um, it's, it's, I think it's incumbent on all of us to, to take this threat seriously and not just see it as a weird Internet phenomenon because it does bleed into the real world. Can we even make it political by saying right or left, Ishmael? And by that, I'm and, and and the reason I'm saying this, we here in Hamilton had a situation back in March where a group of masked people saying that they were ungovernable came down the middle of Lock Street and started bashing windows and creating havoc and stuff, and they were the extreme left. So, uh, do we target at one or the other? Can we do that? Is that healthy? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's that's a very good question. I think uh, obviously there are you know different strains of extremism and antisocial behavior that we see across the spectrum. Uh, in regards to this specific community that we're talking about today, I think it's pretty hard to take it out of the larger far right politics that has developed online. Right. Like I said, you you do see a lot of racism and and anti-women sentiment and uh, and I think that is unfortunately more prominent on the right these days. Ishmael Daro has been with us, social news editor for BuzzFeed. Ishmael, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The Ontario Auditor General dealt another blow to the provincial government, saying that their financial statements uh, dramatically underestimate their deficit. This in regard to, uh, you might remember, all the budget and and so on and so forth. There was a a brief proroguing of government, and and then they uh, had a throne speech and announced a new budget. Uh, This is on an analysis of that budget. She says that the deficit deficit projections are off by about 75% and uh, that they are using uh, a different means of accounting in all of this in the sense that uh, they are, there's some issues in regard to the teacher's pension plan, which they are claiming as assets, uh, as well as uh, the refinancing of the Green Energy Act, which, of course, uh, delays uh, the raise in, on, in electricity rates in Ontario. Uh, that being said, Premier Wynne has said, you know, we've got lots of big uh, accounting firms that uh, says this is all on the up and up. However, it doesn't appear that there's an Auditor General in the country that uh, agrees with this sort of thing. Let's bring in Christo 
Abali, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council Postdoctoral Fellow in History, University of Toronto, and he is with us now. Crystal, thanks for taking the chance, or thanks for taking the opportunity. We uh, greatly appreciate this uh, having you on again today. Thanks for having me. So, what are you thought? What are your thoughts here, Christo? Who do you believe? Do we believe the Auditor General of the day, or do we believe the Premier of the day? Well, I mean, you know, it's a tricky question in terms of belief. It's maybe not the best word to use here because I don't think either person is lying. I think it's a matter of interpretation. So, I guess it would be more: who do you agree with? How can you, how can you misinterpret it, the Auditor General, whose job it is to be the financial watchdog of Ontario? Well, I think it's it's determining what are, what are assets, what are and how to define it. And I think that I think a lot of Ontarians, maybe a majority of Ontarians, would be on the Auditor General side, uh, which is that you know you can't necessarily interpret uh, things like pensions as assets, but it, it's not necessarily an issue of believing, in my view, because you know it really depends on your perspective. Uh, it's not as if one is saying, look, we have this secret account here with one, you know, a billion dollars in it, and the other general's account doesn't exist, in that kind of sense. But I, I, do, I do think that uh, a lot of people are skeptical of this interpretation coming from the government. From what I understand, there isn't an auditor general in the country that agrees with this. No, I, I mean, I, it's an interesting perspective, because, you know, historically, um, federal governments, like Jean Chrétien's government, um, one of the things they were able to do was, was raid workers' pensions to help uh, pay down the deficit. And in that sense, you know, historically, governments have used pensions, have used workers' pensions, have stolen from workers to, to, to pay off the deficit. So in that perspective, whether or not you should, governments have done it. Um, but I think the Auditor General is, is, is right to caution the government in saying, look, we don't know if you can access this, how easily you can access this. So it's, it's a little bit erroneous to say it's actually part of your asset. So what is this about? Is this about the government wanting to access pension money to bail them out? Or is this about making it appear that the deficit is smaller than it actually is heading into an election? What's the purpose of all of this from the liberal point of view? I mean, it could be both. I think immediately it's, it's probably the latter. It's probably uh, creating the perception that the deficit is smaller. I mean, in the last federal election... If that's all that's to be gained here, Christo, why are we even having this fight? Why are we even having this discussion? Because at the end of the day, if it's what you suggested earlier, and that is they will have access to these funds, that's very concerning for people thinking, well, they're going to dip into pension money to pay off, you know, whatever it is they want to pay off. That's completely separate from just trying to make the numbers appear different than what they are heading into an election. Which one of these should we be most concerned about? I, well, I mean, I think long term, obviously, workers have the, you know, shouldn't have their pension stolen, be it by a private sector employer, as we've seen, or by employers, which we've seen. That's a commonality between both the private and public sector. But I do feel the immediate political gain uh, is to, is to uh, try to make the deficit look smaller. I mean, this was an issue in the 2015 federal election. The Harper Conservatives, um, when they posted their final budget, they posted, you know, we're in surplus. But what people said was if it was based on a projection of what they would get in federal collective bargaining. And the union said in no simple terms that we don't agree to those figures. And if we follow even something approaching our demands, the government will be in a deficit position. So you can use uh, projections. You can use creative access to certain assets, which you don't have. 
And I think that's the immediate goal. But again, longer term, if governments can effectively say pensions are assets or unemployment insurance monies are assets, then what they're effectively saying is, you know, maybe we're saying we're not going to spend them, but we could at some point tap into those for whatever reason. But again, you know, the, the example you just gave, you're talking about, you know, uh, deals with unions or special interest or what have you. But this is the Auditor General that's saying this. No, no. And, and, uh, yeah, 100%. I think, I think what they're saying is, is that Ontarians need to have the full picture here, which is to say that if you're counting pensions and things as assets, then there are consequences to that. And what she's saying, what the Auditor General is saying, is that I don't think those are assets, at least not in the traditional way that we think of them. And I don't think that, that and I think she, her perspective is that I don't think she thinks the public sees them as assets in the traditional sense. So from her interpretation, the deficit size is larger because those can't be counted as assets right. yeah. that kind of balance the deficit. Right? So that being said, counting them as assets, meaning it means that you have to be able to dip into them. So do you think there's any thoughts or, 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 or how would it be from an, from an image standpoint if all of a sudden people are thinking, well, wow, are the liberals thinking now that they're, they need money that they're going to start dipping into pension funds for this? Well, I think it's an interesting perspective, and people might think that. They might think that. And again, I can't, I can't think of what this government's going to do. I don't want to put, I don't want to impugn motive. But, you know, if, if, if you're arguing this is an asset, and, you know, assets are meant to be used in some cases, you know, whether it's to, to pay down debts or access in rainy days or what have you. So it's a realistic concern people may have. And I think it raises another point is that, you know, um, the Kathleen Wynne liberals have been promising some new spending, but unlike Andrew Horwath and the ONDP, haven't really been promising, you know, the tax increases to offset some of those spending. And I think in that sense, they're going to face increased scrutiny. You combine big spending promises without a lot of tax increases, and then you're talking about using working workers' pensions as assets potentially. Hmm. And I think that people can draw, you know, people can draw a triangle and, and make conclusions of what they will, fair or not, accurate or not. Politics isn't always about fairness and and the truth, it's about perception a lot of the time. And I think that's a danger for this government. Uh, why, are a, why are other auditor generals disagreeing with this? And again, I'm not sure this has been done before in the same way this is being done. I mean, it, 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 there, there, there are different perspectives, right? It's, you know, accounting is, is an art, I guess, and a science, right? There are there are certain baseline rules, and I'm not an accountant. And I, no, and I can understand. I can understand this yeah. argument completely, uh, Christo. But at the end yeah. of the day, this is a this is a, uh, a disagreement between the auditor general, whose job is to look after the fiscal responsibilities of, of the province, and the premier. So, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the premier or anybody shouldn't be doing anything creative other than doing what the auditor general says. No. And I mean, again, it it just seems that the body that's been put in place to protect us, the government's trying to discredit it. Well, you know, that's 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 uh, always a historical thing, right? We have these systems of accountability, um, you know, whether it's budgetary or whether it's political. We have ombudsmen and even at uh, non-governmental organizations, they have ombudsmen, ombudspeople that are there to protect consumers and and what have you. And I think ultimately you're right. The government should generally err 
on the side of following the advice of these impartial bodies. Ultimately, however, though, the parliament and the legislature are supreme. So the Auditor General can say what they will, but at the end of the day, the people elected by the um, voters of Ontario can make the decisions as they will, unless it's, they can be challenged in the court somehow. So in a disagreement, uh, you know, the government has the right to disagree with people like the Auditor General. Now, that can be very dangerous politically, because if the Auditor General, either the person who holds the office or the office more broadly, is well respected by Ontarian voters, and you're seen as kind of willfully ignoring their interpretation of the budgetary data or what they recommend on a certain policy, that could hurt you. But again, you know, generally Parliament is supreme, or the or, or the legislature is supreme. Uh, my next question, you've, you sort of just chatted about, uh, what about the blowback? Would the blowback not be worse? Why even go here? Because it appears at this point, it, they haven't suggested they're going to go in and raid anybody's pension, and I don't think voters would like to hear that either. Uh, it's, it appears the only reason that they're doing this is to make it look like the deficit is, is smaller than, than what it actually is. Once you start disagreeing with the Auditor General and saying, well, I got a pile of big Bay Street accountants that say this is all on the up and up, isn't that blowback worse than just finding out how much debt we're really carrying? I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's just about displaying a number. I mean, it's, it's, that's a, you know, when you talk about like the big Bay Street accountants, I think a lot of Ontarians might say, well, I don't really trust those guys. But, you know, we're in a time right now where Doug Ford is, is, is getting a lot of the vote off this kind of general reverence for the private sector. So why would she feed, and that's my point, Crystal, why would she feed into that? Why would she, you know, I mean, that's that's exactly what people are thinking. Why would she, this is a trap for her in a sense. I mean, she's just setting herself up for opposition attack. I mean, I think, I think, I think the, the opposition attack on this particular issue would come more from the left. I think in her tying herself to Bay Street, I mean, that's a good thing if you're a conservative voter. Mm. These are the people who want to fight you know, the, the the unions, they want to fight the, 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 the poor people. They want to fight. Yeah, but I think uh, when that yeah, person you know, that they're fighting is the Ontario voter and the Ontario Auditor General, I, I think they look at that a bit differently than that. No, I mean, I think that's a fair point. I think, I guess from my perspective, you know, what she's banking on here, what Kathleen Wynne and the Liberals are banking on, and this could be, you know, a, a good tactic or a bad tactic. I, I, I think I agree with you that it's a bad one, is that they're, they're banking on the fact that no one's paying attention to this yet, that that they, maybe they see this as insider politics and that what they're going to try to do is run on their platform and say and follow their interpretation. And then, you know, hopefully they get elected and then they can forget about this for two or four years, depending on if it's a majority or, or a minority. And I think what the opposition is going to have to do, Ford is going to have to say, well, look, this just shows we need bigger cuts than we even thought. Like, so our vision is the correct one. We need more fiscal responsibility. And Andrew Horwath has to say, look, this government... Um, isn't making the right choices. We need to raise our taxes. We need to make these difficult financial choices to balance progress on financial terms and on spending terms. And Wynne is not willing to do that. And she could find herself trapped in the middle. You know, she could find herself without this means to to really stake out a, a viable position because she's not willing to raise taxes and yet she's not willing to cut. So what is she willing to do? She's willing to play creative accounting games. And that could put her in trouble. Uh, you talked about the NDP. How should they position themselves here, especially when it becomes a fiscal issue? You know, I think their position has to be on, again, we're the party willing to raise taxes. We're a party willing to, to, to ensure that the people who can afford to pay 
uh, do pay. And whether or not people agree with that, of course, will remain to be seen. I think that has to be their perspective. I think they also have to tap into this general idea that oftentimes the Auditor General's agreed with them, whether it's on the hydro issue or whatnot, and they can say, look, they've questioned the viability of privatization, and we agree with that. And they question the idea of, of how the assets are counted. And, and, and you know, we, 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 we're, we're the staunchest supporter of, of protecting workers' pensions and what have you, so you can trust us on that. And that has to be their perspective. And again, from Ford's perspective, again, this just could feed into his narrative that, look, the, the, the need for, for financial restraint is even bigger than we thought. So, you know, vote for me even harder, I guess. Uh, what happens, does, does this say anything to us, Christo, about what the next government will face once, if there is a change in government and a new government comes in place, which most are thinking it probably will, what are they going to have on their hands? If And this certainly isn't the first time that Bonnie Lissick, the, the Auditor General, has butt heads with... Uh, the win liberals on 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 accounting practices. So once these books get opened up after the election, why are we to assume that this hasn't been going on all along and, and it's completely different from what the Auditor General has been guiding us through? I mean, that's a com- that's a common thing, right? You you know, government. Yeah, it's always worse when you get in. Yeah. Well, no, you know, governments be transparent, and I you know I don't think Canada's governments on a global scale are. are are awfully secretive or anything of that sort. But, you know, every government, uh, NDP, liberal, conservative, what have you, does have certain interests in portraying its situation as rosier than it, than it maybe was. And, you know, there could be concerns about how these things were interpreted and what that could affect in a new government. And that could mean that, you know, if you're, if you're an NDP government, maybe some of the spending promises you have, maybe they're not viable. And I think just as reasonably... Because $1 of tax cut is an addition to the deficit as well. Ford might have to say on all of some of his promises to cut taxes, he might have to break some of those promises. And he might have to, you know, if he wants to be a true fiscal conservative, he might have to, you know, raise taxes and keep program spending as it is. And I don't think a lot of people want that. You know, people think of fiscal conservatism as tax cuts, but it could mean, um, you know, uh, you know, tax increases. On, on everyone to cover Kathleen Wynne's mistakes, and maybe that's what Doug Ford will have to do. We, honestly, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I, I think that this is a kind of an interpretive issue, and I, and I mean, I, I don't see, I don't know how it's going to play out, but that's, that could be a wild card uh, come, come June and, and if we have a new government. And again, the wrinkles are even, are even harder to determine if it's a minority government because then there's the political reality of compromise with at least one of the other parties and et cetera, et cetera. Any more fallout, Krista, on the comment, um, the comment made by the campaign co-chair calling him, uh, you know, do I want to mention it again? Uh, any more fallout from that? But, you know, between the comments of the bully and then that and then the Auditor General, it hasn't been a good week for them. No, I mean, I think, I think a lot of people don't like Doug Ford. I mean, right now he's winning. He's winning pretty big right now. But I think that there's a lot of people who don't like him. But I think that a lot of people are wary of making the direct Trump comparison. And I think that's for a variety of reasons. I don't think Doug Ford has the same kind of racial worldview necessarily uh, that Trump does. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that Doug Ford has this, the, even the same kind of general political approach. And I think a lot of Canadians don't want to think of a politician that could be their next premier as being a Trump-like person. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, calling him a bit of the D word or, 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 or you know, Kathleen Wynne going on and saying he's Trump 
I think a lot of people see it as a bit desperate. And I think they're seeing that Kathleen Wynn right now um, kind of pulled tying with the NDP or a little bit behind the NDP. But when you add that into the seat counter, the Liberals being sub six or seven seats, um, Kathleen Wynn is desperate. I think she knows her government's going down in flames. They've lost a dozen people who aren't running again. And I think people see the desperation. And I think, um, I think, I think she's going to have a very hard time. And I think that the challenge to Ford now is going to be from, you know, a positive thinking, positive speaking person like Andrea Horwath, who, who's not going to make the Trump comparison, because I think at the end of the day, she wants to make it about the issues and say, look, Doug Ford, we, dis- we disagree on a lot of things. We have a very different vision, but I'm not going to be swinging mud at him. Hmm. Christo Avalis has been with us, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, postdoctoral fellow and doctoral fellow in history at the University of Toronto. Christo, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. As we have waited for so long for our city to turn a corner, to see a renaissance, to... Well, uh, to get to where we've been trying to get to for the last 20 years, 25 years maybe, um, always a question of gentrification and how, when a city moves forward, it may leave some behind. Residents in the east end of the city have decided to hold a rent strike next month. The protests, the landlords push for higher rent prices. Uh, let's bring in Hamilton, uh, sorry, Hamilton Tenant Solidarity Board member Campbell Young and is with us now. Campbell, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Thanks for having me on, Scott. So what is the Hamilton Tenant Solidarity Board? Uh, Hamilton Tenant Solidarity Network. We are a group of tenants. Volu- we're a volunteer group of tenants and their supporters, and our mission is to support tenant struggles around the city, tenant organizing, and to link those struggles together across the city to fight for affordable housing and better conditions for tenants. How has uh, what you're doing changed in the last couple of years? What are you seeing? Uh, Well, obviously, as a lot of people have noticed, the rents are going up extremely dramatically. Um, For example, in the buildings we're organizing in, a lot of the older tenants uh, are renting at seven or eight hundred dollars a month, which is fairly doable for a lot of lower income people. Empty units in that complex are going, uh, one bedroom is currently going for $1,400 a month. Hmm. Um, what, how, how do you organize? How do you, how do you get people on board with something like this? Well, we, uh, we do it the old-fashioned way. We approach the tenants face-to-face. We knock on doors. We talk to them about their problems. We listen to them. We conduct meetings that are open and democratic and we try to take actions that involve the tenants and that are meaningful and put direct pressure on the landlord as opposed to relying on the, the legal system, which we all know is rigged in favor of the landlords. How involved are the landlords in these discussions? Well, in this case, the landlord is a bit of an absentee. They are a real estate investment trust based in Ottawa. They contract the management of the buildings. They're called interrent, by the way. They contract the management of the buildings to a... Uh, property manager called CLV, which is basically a sock puppet for these real estate investment trusts. So tell us about the situation with these buildings uh, in the East End. What's happening here specifically? So tenants have long dealt with poor conditions in their building, even with the previous uh, landlord. Um, Poor windows, uh, heating system that doesn't work, dysfunctional elevators, the list goes on. Now, 
Interrent bought the buildings uh, about two years ago. It's a typical case of what we call renoviction. So they buy property at a discount price, multi-residential property, and basically they try to squeeze the older tenants out because every empty unit is money to them and increased capital value. So they do that by neglecting repairs in the units, generally, sometimes direct harassment, conveniently losing rent checks, things like that. And while they're doing that, they make cosmetic repairs to the outside of the building, and in some cases, necessary repairs that should have been done anyways. And then they try to flip those charges on the older tenants. Hmm. What through this are, AGI process. How old are these specific buildings? Are we talking about uh, the buildings just east of Centennial Parkway and south of Barton Street East? How ho- old are these buildings? What are the conditions? Well, generally, structurally, they seem to be in okay, in okay condition. I don't know the exact age, but they are decades old. Um, the problem with the condition is the actual condition of the units for the long-standing tenants. Mm-hmm. So we're talking uh, a, like a major complaint that consistently comes up is the windows and the heating system. Right. So countless tenants we've talked to over the winter have been dealing with apartments that are consistently below the legal, legally allowed temperature. In many cases, we have tenants with plywood put up instead of windows because the landlord, the property manager, has been so slow to make those necessary repairs. Um, We've also had elderly tenants being injured by dysfunctional elevators that stop halfway on a floor and they fall through, um, that drop suddenly several feet, and I don't know, the list goes on. And obviously, I guess, uh, they're not doing a lot of work to older tenants' buildings, meaning in not necessarily their age, but people that have been there for a long time, hoping that they will obviously leave instead of um, before the, the, the repairs are done, I'm guessing. Absolutely. They have a, a direct financial incentive to clear those longstanding tenants out for vacant units, which they can jack up by several hundred dollars. And I understand that some are even off- offering incentives for some to leave. Yeah, there have been buyouts. Uh, generally, the tenants have not been taking them because, as far as I know, for that complex, the, the maximum it's gone up to is $3,600, which is really, in today's rental market, doesn't go very far, uh, especially if you factor in moving costs. And a lot of times, these landlords promise a buyout, and then they'll inspect the unit uh, and observe every little scratch on the wall mm-hmm. and take half of it away uh, for damage. Wow. Um so what can the tenants do here? I mean, uh, you're trying to organize them. What, what can they do? What, and, and what are these tenants doing? Obviously, they're going to withhold rent. Yeah, they're withholding rent, which is a... Can, can, you get, can you get full compliance with that? Can you get everybody to do that? No, it's not like a labor strike where it's a closed shop kind of yeah. thing where, where you need to have a, a, a strike mandate and every, everybody on board. Um, it's up to every individual tenant if they want to participate in the strike, but... Going door-to-door, holding meetings, meetings we have uh, anywhere from 50 to 100 people typically at a mass meeting. Um, we have a lot of, a significant proportion of the tenants participating in the rent strike. So, um, what, like if some do and some don't, uh, do, what about repercussion to the tenants that, that withhold the rent? Um, you know, even if it seems to be a, a well-organized cause and such, uh, are these people not opening themselves up to further uh, you know, har- uh, to further harm in this situation? Well, I don't want to comment in detail on that, but we, we have informed the tenants of what they're likely to expect, mm-hmm. and we have them well prepared, and we believe we will be able to avoid evictions. 
So uh, what about tenants that might be worried, geez, if I speak up against this, if I, you know, join this cause, then, you know, my rates are going to go up even more. They're going to do even more to try to get me out. I think most tenants understand that right now they're basically frogs in a pot that's boiling slowly. Right. And that they really need to organize and stand together to fight this. Uh, I think there's a pretty broad understanding of that. Of course, not everybody realizes that, and we have to explain that to people, but generally there's a good understanding of the process that's going on here, uh, of these real estate tycoons getting rich off of working-class people's backs. And there's a pretty solid and, and intuitive understanding of that throughout the complex and around the city, quite frankly. How does how will this work? Like all of a sudden, just next month, they don't send, they don't hand in the rent check. Well, we've advised tenants to keep keep the rent money aside, uh, whether it's a money order or a separate account, so that they can pay it once the strike is resolved. So, uh, and will this start like with with the May first check? Yes, it will be starting on May first. So uh, they're organized, they've decided to do this. Any idea how many will actually withhold rent, uh, percentages-wise, and how many will just business as usual? Well, May 1st, we're expecting 20 to 30%. If it drags into June, I expect significantly more than that. Who knows, it might even be more than our wildest dreams. It Mm. could be... The majority for all I know. Will we find out? Will we find out, uh, Campbell, what those actual numbers will be? I mean, would those be revealed? Yeah, we'll, we'll reveal that publicly once we tally it up hmm. uh, in the first week of May. So let's say that, you know, this all goes off May 1st, uh, so many percentage of, say even if it's half that, that um, withhold the rent, how long can they do this? What happens next? What happens after they withhold the rent? What are you expecting? Well, I'm expecting inter rent and CLV to do what's right and come to the negotiating table. Tenants are demanding that inter rent drop the above guideline increase and make necessary repairs to the units, and that's what we're expecting to happen. So, what is the proposal that um, this company has put out? What is it? Is there something specific that they're fighting? Is there what's the policy? So, this is an above guideline increase. I don't know how familiar your listeners are with that process, but it's basically a loophole around rent control laws in Ontario. Mm-hmm. And the, these big landlords, these big corporate entities, have it pretty fine tuned with their, their consultants and their lawyers. And, and it's become a pretty well oiled machine for getting around rent control and gouging tenants. Um, typically, what happens is they make cosmetic repairs or, like I say, repairs that needed to be done anyways, and then they foust those charges onto the tenants. So once uh, this has all started and, and, and the rent has been withdrawn do, uh, or, or not paid, do you expect legal action from the company that owns this? I mean, I, you know, I, I, I don't know how optimistic I would be about, oh, well, you know, if everybody withholds the rent, then all of a sudden they're going to do the right thing. Well, there's a pretty strong precedent right now. Uh, in the last year, um, Parkdale Organized in Toronto uh, organized two successful rent strikes that were victorious. So we're expecting the same to happen. We're expecting Interrent and CLV to come to the negotiating table and meet tenants' demands. So what does victorious mean? What, how, would, how would this be resolved for the better for everyone? That the company drops the rent increase and makes the repairs for tenants. And what do you think the chances of that happening? I think they're pretty good. Like I say, uh, there's a precedent in the last year. It happened twice in in Parkdale, Toronto, where there were two successful rent strikes. 
And is Hamilton as a city, is it right for this sort of thing? It would be, wouldn't uh, it, considering the development that's going on? Absolutely. As we all know, uh, the industrial economy has been decimated in the last 30 or 40 years. It's been replaced to some extent by uh, services and health care. But a lot of it's been replaced by really low-wage service jobs and, and temp positions and employment that's not really meeting people's needs. Uh, so if you add to that mix rapidly rising housing costs, people are getting angry and people are getting organized. So what is the future for uh, apartment renting in this province? Uh, obviously, there's changes that need to be made. This you know, would seem to help or may help these people here. But, but what needs to be done in order to correct the rental situation in the province? Because well, obviously, not, obviously there's, a, there's, there's less amount of these units that are available. Right. There does need to be more construction of housing. Uh, personally, I would like to see the construction of a big amount of affordable housing. For example, uh, with the LRT line, where hundreds of people are getting directly uh, expropriated and evicted from their apartments, They've, the Metrolinx has only pledged $5.9 million for new affordable housing. So that's really a pittance. Um, HCSN is not a, uh, a lobby group. We don't have a, a blueprint for how housing should be in, in Ontario, but we believe that positive changes will come through the direct organization and pressure of working-class people and working-class tenants in particular. Could this set a precedence in this city, do you think? I think it will. I think it will spread, and landlords better be advised. Uh, because as we said earlier, I mean, the city is ripe for this sort of thing, so if this, if this uh, turns out to be successful, could you see others uh, doing the same sort of thing? Yes, I, I could definitely see that. If people want to find out more information, if people uh, are in a scenario where they're not sure they're being treat, treated fairly or not, what should they do, Campbell? What, what should they, where should they go? Well, they can contact Hamilton Tenant Solidarity Network, and we can advise them on how to organize uh, with their neighbors. Um, uh, obviously, we're quite wrapped up with the rent strike right now, but after the rent strike is successful, and I believe it will, we will be doing educational work around the city to help other tenants get organized. And have you heard anything from the developers of, this, uh, of these buildings that you're talking about? Uh, in the East End, are, are, are they reacting to any of this? Uh, any idea uh, what their response would be to, to the tenants withholding their rent in, in the beginning of May? Uh, not that I'm aware of, but I can pretty much picture their office in Ottawa being a bit of a buzz right now. All right, Campbell Young has been with us. Hamilton Tenant Solidarity Network residents in the East End of the city have decided to hold a rent strike next month to protest the landlord's push for higher rent prices. Campbell, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.